0: It's my kind of joy to preach to you this morning, and uh, inevitably, I guess, at the end of the year, you do want to have a look at the year and just see what you feel God has said and how the year has been. And I've stolen this title from a a movie, A Good Year. Who's seen A Good Year? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a wonderful movie about a a hard-headed banker from London who inherits a a, a vineyard in France, and it's the story of of how he kind of... His whole life changes after he inherits his vineyard. But um, I'm not going to speak about wine. I'm not going to speak about any of those things. I'm just going to speak about a good year, all right? And I have to say that looking back on 2012, from my perspective, uh, it has been a really, really good year for us as a church. And I mean, it's been a great year for the nation. We've had the Diamond Jubilee. We've had... Um, the Olympics, many, many wonderful highlights during the year. But I have to say, God has been faithful to us as a church in every way. And uh, I was just uh, thinking this week, back over the year, I was just reminded of that story of the ten lepers. Do you remember the story of the ten lepers? And uh, Jesus touched them, and they were healed. And there was this, the, the point of the story is that only one leper came back to say thank you. And I just feel like it's good for us to reflect as we come to the end of the year as a community and maybe even as I'm preaching you can begin to think of some good things that God has done for you this year and um, I'm going to give opportunity at the end for us just to share some of the things that God has done for us and to encourage each other and the good things that God has done for us. We've got a friend who... who wrote this letter and said uh, they had a a tough year in many ways where they were staying, but she felt God say this to her. She was reminded of that little song that uh, we've sung in Sunday school, Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And so she began to write down some things, and eventually she wrote down 12 highlights of the year for her. And even though they had been through a tough time in some ways, overwhelmingly she had to look back on the year and say, God, you have been good to us. And I hope at the end of this morning that we'll all be able to look back on this year and say, God, you've been good to us. And so I want to encourage you to think, even as I'm speaking now, of maybe a couple of things that you can say, God, I want to thank you for that. And then we're going to have the opportunity um, to share at the end all together. But I, I started the year in January by talking about us being a covenant community on a mission together. And I don't know if you remember that series. And I asked five questions at the end of January of us as a church community, and I just want to remind you of what I said. I said this. I said, do you have faith this year that God could more fully fashion us into a community of faith that loves Him and loves each other? That's the first question I asked. And secondly, I said this. Do you have faith that this year the church can see many added through salvation as the gospel is preached and lived out during the week? Thirdly, I said this, do you believe that all of us can be so changed by the Spirit that we live more for others than we do for our own selfish needs? Fourthly, I said, do you have faith that as we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to us as a community? Family, friends, His provision, His future for us, signs and wonders, His Holy Spirit's in added measure. And so I asked you those five questions as a kind of anticipation of 2012. And then the, the last one was, do you have faith that this year, through the faithful giving of this community, that no ministry would be lacking in people, no money would be lacking in finance, so that we can become a giving church in every way? And as I was just thinking this week, I have to say that overwhelmingly, I feel like God has done all of those things that I asked Him for during the year. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. I do see a community that is growing in love for Him and in love for each other. I do see a community where many have been added over 2012. If I was to ask, even though there are many away this morning, how many of you have been added to this community this year? Please just raise your hands. There's a whole bunch of people. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? God has been faithful to His Word. I do see people being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I do see many seeking first the kingdom, and as they seek the kingdom with all of their hearts, God is blessing them with family, friends, and His provision in every way. It is a wonderful thing. And we have seen, God, that nothing has lacked. We have not lacked anything this year as God has faithfully provided for us in every area of our lives and as a community. And I see people joyfully giving themselves to the community of faith that God is building here. This is a wonderful Thing. And I want to encourage you, let's not ever take it for granted. All right? And so as we look back at 2012, we're also looking forward at the same time to 2013. And there's always a growing sense of excitement and expectation whenever a new year greets us. And I, as I've been thinking and praying and trusting God for some things this year, I've said to Helen a number of times, I, I said, uh, uh, I feel like we're on the cusp of something, and I'm getting so excited, but at the same time, I'm nervous. Do you, you know that kind of sense? Where there's a sense of God is going to do something, and you want to see it, but you don't, you don't want to lose it. You don't want to kind of do anything stupid so that it doesn't happen. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that. And so I've been thinking and praying and saying, God, how can we best cooperate with you in this new year? And I, I'm just overwhelmingly aware that whenever you think about these things, People offer strategies on how to make a church grow, and uh, many of these things work, but I want to say, overwhelmingly, most of the things that I've heard in terms of church growth are really not gospel-centered principles of growth. They're more man-centered ideas of a good thing that we might do to help the church grow. And so, people will say things like this, you must advertise to see the church grow, you must let people know that you're there and so spend lots of money advertising. Or you must evangelize. Everyone needs to evangelize. And this is, these things are all good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. You must give faithfully and be a generous people and tithe and give all that needs to happen for the church to go forward. Bring your neighbors, bring your friends, bring your family. That's how the church is going to grow. Now all those things are good. And I'm not knocking any of them. All I am saying is this though. If we get into the strategy of making something grow, you know what happens? Inevitably, there's a subtle expectation put on people in the congregation to perform so that that happens. And so inevitably, if you put pressure on people to perform, people start to feel guilty even before they've started, and inevitably there's failure. And so strategy can be a good thing. Vision can be a good thing. But I believe, unless it's rooted in the gospel, unless it's rooted in a great love for Jesus, inevitably it will bring people who work themselves into the ground. They become sick and weary and withdrawn, and growth does not last. So, as we reflect back on 2012 and say thank you, God, for a great year, and we look forward to 2013, I want to ask you some more questions. <laughs> All right, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm going to ask the questions anyway. How can we keep ourselves free? How can you and I keep ourselves free and see the church grow and still be a blessing to this community? I think that's a very, very good question to ask. R.T. Kendall, I've said this before. R.T. said to me, Ant, it's wonderful when you've discovered the gospel, it's much harder to keep yourself free. Why? Because people put stuff on you, and society put stuff on you, and religious people put stuff on you. To keep yourself free in the gospel is the greater challenge. And I'm asking as we go forward into 2013, how can we help each other to be free in the gospel, not living under expectations, and still see the church grow and succeed? And so I'm going to offer you five things this morning. I'm going to dwell on one in particular. And I've preached on this before. I want to say to you that if we are going to see this church to fulfill all that God has for it, all of us must be rooted in this simple thing. All of us have to have a revelation of Jesus. That's, that's the simplicity of what I want to say this morning, a revelation of Christ. We have this incredible privilege as Christians which is summarized in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I'm sure you know, it says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. I want to say to you, as we leave 2012, regardless of the highs and the lows of the year, I want to speak it over you and say, there's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for me as we look forward to the new year. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you know the book of Romans, this first verse of chapter 8 comes after chapter 7, in which Paul has been describing sin, and the results of sin. And he he triumphs with this verse, and he says in the first verse of chapter 8, there's therefore no condemnation for us. And if you know the gospel, if you know what Jesus has done for you, that is the most overwhelming thing in your life. It should be for all of us as Christians that there's no condemnation for us. And I've said these things before, I want to remind you, the Bible doesn't say, Paul doesn't say there's no accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world accuses, our conscience accuses us, the devil accuses us, but there's a heavenly advocate, there's Jesus, our heavenly advocate, who gets all the charges brought against us, thrown out of court, and he says, not guilty. Paul doesn't say there's no Nothing in us that deserves condemnation, because there is. There is sin in every one of us. And these are the things that we struggle with from day to day. We see sin in our lives, and we mourn over it, and we wish we could rid ourselves of it. But sin is not the ruin of us. That that, that is what Paul is saying in this verse. Paul doesn't say there's no tribulation, there's no hard times for those that are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. And for many of you, there have been some difficulties in 2012. But the overwhelming promise of Jesus is he says, don't worry about that stuff because I have overcome the world. And greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our protection. He's our the advocate in heaven that advocates on our behalf. What Paul does say, he says there's no condemnation. I want to remind you over and over again, God is pleased with you. God is smiling on you. As you leave 2012, remember that. God is smiling on you. He's pleased with you. All that Jesus did fulfilled the law completely so that you can have a relationship with God And because you are in Christ, he smiles on you right now. And he says, well done. I I love uh, Matthew 17, 5, where God says this over his son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He says that over Jesus' life, before Jesus has done anything for him. Before his ministry has started, before he's healed anybody, before he's preached a word, God says over his son, this is my son who I am well pleased in. And just because you are in Christ, if you know Jesus this morning, because you are in Christ, God is well pleased with you. He is smiling upon you before you have done anything for him. Man, if we, can, if we can live in that place from day to day, we will be free all the time. It's not about what you do for God. God loves obedience. He loves joyful obedience. But He is overwhelmingly pleased with you already simply because you are in His Son, because you believe in Him. He smiles on you. And we've seen also in our study of James over this last year, that James says this in, in, in verse 25 of chapter 1. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of freedom, that's what James calls it, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And it's the same thing that James says as what Paul is saying. It's the same concept, it's a different language. James calls it liberty or freedom. And he's trying to describe what it means to be born again. He says, when we are born again, when we are regenerated by the blood of Christ, once we are are in Christ, we are set free from sin because of what the blood of Christ does. And at the same time, we are set free to explore who we are in a whole new way. And there are a whole lot of new possibilities that exist for us because we are now in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. And so James and Paul tries to encourage us. They say, we've got two options. Either we can look into the mirror of introspection, and we look inside ourselves. And the, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, he says, if we, are, if we live like that, if we're always looking inside of ourselves, introverted, am I good enough, am I not good enough, am I doing the right thing? Paul says that's still a kind of bondage. He says, it's the spirit of fear And then he encourages us in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, he says, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so what James and and Paul are trying to encourage you and I to do is not to look at every spot and wrinkle and blemish and character flaw that we have and to gaze inward all the time. It does nothing for us. That does nothing for you as a Christian. That's one of the great pitfalls of the Christian life is to always be introverted because then you feel powerless, you feel like you can't contribute to the kingdom, and you feel immobile and useless, and that's exactly where the devil wants you. There is a difference between introspection and self-examination. Introspection is subjective and inward. It leaves you... Without energy, useless, immobile. Self-examination is objective, however, because it's Christ-centered. We look at Christ, and as we look at Christ, and we examine ourselves in light of what Christ has done for us, we are filled with hope and motivation. And James says in that verse, he says, Don't look inward all the time. Look to Jesus. Fix your gaze on Jesus. As you fix your gaze on Jesus, you are set free more and more and more. You're set free from your sin, yes, but you set free to be yourself and discover who you are as you gaze on Christ. That's good news. The perfect law, that's what he says, James. Liberty, freedom. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled faces... Behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I want to encourage you as we go forward into 2013, the foundation of this church must be that we gaze and fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Christ. We gaze into the perfect law of freedom who is Jesus. The more we gaze into the perfect law of freedom, the more we gaze into the face of Jesus, the more we will see that it's perfect freedom and we are perfectly free from any condemnation. The Greek there is parakipsos, which means to gaze intently into. It's you fix, you are transfixed with Jesus. You're gazing into His face. So can I leave you with this thought as we leave 2012 and as we embrace 2013? God says you're okay. God says he loves you. God is smiling on you. Relax and enjoy who God has made you to be. And we all have different gifts, don't we? And that's why the church is such an amazing thing because we are all so different. And God would say to all of us, enjoy who you are. And we don't always want to be we don't want to be clones. And as we gaze into Christ's face, he will say to you, you're ready, I can use you. He doesn't ever say, go away and get yourself right. Go and pray and fast for another five years before I can use you. He says, I'll use you just as you are right now because I'm in you and the power of my spirit is in you. That is good news. Still with me? Okay, so that's the first kind of thing I want to say around this thing of no condemnation. The second thing is simply this. Paul continues and says, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We have a privilege because we are saved. The privilege that we have is that there's no condemnation for us because we are in Christ. That's our privilege. That's the privilege of being saved. The the theological word is justification. We are justified. There's another theological word, which is sanctification, which means we are being transformed. The privilege that we have, in terms of our sanctification, is that we get to walk by the Spirit. How many times have you heard that phrase this year? We get to walk by the Spirit. That's the other privilege that we have. How do we learn to walk by the Spirit? Well, I want to say this to you. First up. If we are going to be men and women, that walk by the Spirit. We're never going to walk by the Spirit if we try to live by rules. Okay? Living by rules, trying to do the right thing, does not help you to walk by the Spirit. All right? Living by rules doesn't justify you. Living by rules doesn't sanctify you. Trying to live by rules doesn't do it either. Living by rules cannot free you from the guilt of sin. It cannot free you from the power of sin. Living by rules cannot pardon you, cannot take your sin away, and it cannot promise you grace. If you try and live by rules, those things are not available to you. And Paul, in Romans, if you read the Scripture, he says that the law is perfect... And the fact that we can't keep the rules that God has said, it's got nothing to do with the the rules being imperfect. It's got everything to do with our flesh, our bodies being corrupt. And we are unable, because of the human nature that we've inherited, we are unable to keep the law. It's like the law, the rules, are like a plaster. But there's a gaping wound underneath the plaster. And the, the, the rules, they only are like the plaster on top of the wound. They don't take the wound away. That's why I thank God daily for Jesus, all right? And if you read Hebrews, Hebrews says this. In verse chapter 10, verse 4, it says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. And the Jewish people were trying to live by a ritualistic system of rules that took away their sin as they offered up animal sacrifices. And the writer to the Hebrews says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, to take away your sin. And he carries on and he says this, For since the law is a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he carries on and later says this, But when Christ offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has purchased for all time those who are being sanctified. Hallelujah! No more rules. No more rules. Simply living by the Spirit. Letting the Spirit of God in us say, John, I want you to do that this morning. No rule. No person forcing John to do anything. And John simply responds and says, God, thank you that I can hear your Spirit. I'm going to do that today. And he walks by the Spirit. That is an incredible privilege. <laughs> I've never been good at obeying rules. Ask my wife when I drive. She's always, she's always helping me to keep the rules. Keep on the right side of the road, stop at the stop signs. <laughs> if you break the rules as a driver, you get punished. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is because of Christ, we don't receive any punishment for the wrong that we do, that is good news. And we live by the Spirit who transforms us and He helps us. And He says, this is how I want you to live. And He doesn't beat us up when we get it wrong. He says, my grace is available to you. Man. So, if we, don't, if we can't live by the Spirit, if we, if we can't um, do this thing by following rules, how do we do it? I've already said it. It's the power of the Spirit of Christ in us. That enables us to live this life. And the simplicity of the gospel is this that there's a new covenant of grace that we walk into as soon as we are saved. The rules no longer apply because they've been fulfilled in Christ, and we and and we we move into a new covenant of grace, which which frees us from the power of sin and the power of death. And it's like we are married to a new husband. If you read Galatians, Paul says, the old husband was the law. It's like you married to living by rules. And the new husband is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of grace. And that's what we're married to now, in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It is. There's no one nagging at you to do the right thing. There no more rules, nagging, 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 like a husband or wife, nagging, nagging, nagging. No more, not married to that anymore. What we are married to is the Spirit of Christ in us that lovingly says, I am your new husband. I am the one who's going to guide you into what is right and what is good. And the foundation of all of this is Christ. That God, what we've just celebrated at Christmas time, God so loved the world that He sent His Son. That's the foundation of everything that I'm talking about. And the law failed, and God then provided another means to fulfill the law. Just as Joshua took in the people into the promised land because Moses couldn't do it. The law couldn't take us into the fullness of the promises of God. Living by rules never takes us into the fullness of what God has for us. What does take us into the fullness of what God has for us is the gospel of grace and living by the Spirit. That's what takes us into the fullness of that. So, as we leave... 2012, I'm just trying to say to you that as a church, we want to be those that are rooted in the gospel of the grace of Jesus. That every new person that comes into this church community understands what it is to be saved by the grace of Jesus. That every single person that's part of this church community doesn't try and live their life by following rules. But every single person that comes into this church cultivates for themselves a spirit journey with the Holy Spirit so we can hear for ourselves what God is telling us to do. That pastors stop becoming moral policemen. Yes? What an ex- I've been that. I've lived like that. It's exhausting where people come in the church and they want to know what they should do with their lives. And you kind of somehow the moral policeman. No, no, you're not. Jesus is your Savior. He is the one who speaks to you. I can give you some good stuff. And my responsibility and everyone else who preaches and helps to lead this church is that we want to point people to Christ, to the gospel, to the good news. And then you, for yourself, you discover a walk by the Spirit so that you can live your life and we can grow up and become sons and daughters, not babies anymore. Surely that's good news. That's good news for me. That takes a lot of pressure off for me. Because I I can't be everyone's policeman saying, don't do that, don't do that. That's not good for you. Please don't do that. No, you live your life under the power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. I will help. Every single leader will help. You hear what I'm saying? It's a very different thing. And in verse 5 of that portion in Romans, I am coming towards the end now. Paul helps us. How do we know that we are walking by the Spirit? How do we know that we are not just walking by the flesh? That's what the Bible uses. Well, he says a very simple thing in verse 5. He says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's very simple. How do you know you're walking by the Spirit? Well, is your mind set on the things of the Spirit? Or is your mind consumed with the things of the flesh? What are the things of the flesh? Carnal mindedness. Well, simply worldly things like pursuing large amounts of money for the sake of money, pursuing honor, pursuing money, pursuing sex, pursuing power, trying to get the biggest house that you can. If that is all you are consumed by, then your mind is set on worldly things then we're not walking according to the Spirit. One is things of the Spirit. Things of the Spirit are the favor of God. Things of eternity other the living. This is, these are the things of God. And so Paul just says, if your mind is set on those carnal things, you're living according to the flesh. If your mind is set on spiritual things, then you're walking by the Spirit. Very simple. We can't serve two masters, one or the other. Proverbs 23 says in verse 7, As a man thinks in his heart... So he is. So can I ask you, as we end 2012, what do you think on with most pleasure? I love eating and drinking. I really do. I love food. But you know the Bible says this, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. As good as those things are, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, peace. And joy. If you're only concerned with eating and drinking, if all you can think about is eating and drinking, you are still, and I'm not accusing anyone, we are carnally minded. We are still consumed with the things of this world. I love all of those things, but God encourages us and says, don't, don't let it be the, the focus of your life, your stomach. Don't do that. The focus of your life should be on the kingdom. What consumes you and I should be the things of the Spirit. Okay. And so basically Paul says we shouldn't be controlled by the things of the flesh. We should be controlled by the Spirit. In other words, we shouldn't be a slave to the things of the flesh. We should be those that are consumed with the things of the Spirit. So in summary, there's no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus. We have the privilege of being saved, that is, that there's no condemnation for us. We have a privilege that comes as we walk with with the Spirit, too, that we can get to walk by the Spirit, that we don't have to live by rules. And how does that come about? Well, it can't come about by following rules. It only comes about by cultivating a relationship with the Spirit of Christ in our lives. And I want to ask you to reflect, what are you most consumed by? What are you most giving your hearts affection to? Is it things of the of the flesh or is it something of the kingdom of God? And I want to encourage you that you would make a transition. All of us make a transition away from the flesh towards the Spirit of Christ. I'll finish with this. Acts two forty-two is a little verse. It says, as it says, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. As we seek God for more for this church community, I want to encourage you to go and have a look this year, or this week at least, at that portion in Acts 2. Because there are four main characteristics coming out of the foundation of the gospel that they gave themselves to the early church. And it produced a happy church. It produced a church that was seeing signs and wonders. It produced a a united church. It produced a church that had a desire to worship. It produced a church that was generous and cared for others. It produced a church that had the priority of the church community as a central thing in their lives. It produced a church that were popular with non-believers as well. There there was a sense of the the, the community outside of the church also looked on them with favor. And there's a little phrase that says, they were added to them daily, those that were being saved. So we we would be wise, we would do well to kind of give ourselves to the same things that the early church gave itself to on the foundation of the gospel. And they gave themselves to these things. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? Well, the apostles' doctrine was what I've been trying to describe to you this morning. It was a doctrine of the gospel of grace that there's no condemnation because of Christ. And Paul warns us in Galatians 2, he says, if we try to put onto people any other gospel, which is not that gospel, we bring a curse upon ourselves. That's a sober warning. Don't try and get people to live by rules, which is not the gospel, because we bring a curse upon ourselves when we try and do that. It produces a legalism that produces death. The gospel, Jesus, is the cornerstone, is the foundation stone. I want to encourage you in 2013 to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let Him be your gaze, that you become increasingly free, that you increasingly walk by the Spirit in your own life. And as we devote ourselves to that gospel, there will be those who are being saved and added daily to the church. And we want them to come into that, not into legalism and bondage. Amen? Secondly, They gave themselves, not only to the apostles' doctrine, but they gave themselves to continuing in fellowship, steadfastly in fellowship. And fellowship is vital. What we do on a Sunday, a meeting in a life group, meeting with your friends at every opportunity that you can. I've seen over 20 years of being involved in churches, people get sick when they get out of fellowship. People become sick and tired when they are not in fellowship. When we meet together, we encourage each other with spiritual songs, we break bread together, we pray, we worship, that builds faith, that builds friendship, builds, brings health. Everyone needs to be loved. Everyone needs to know they fit. Everyone needs to find a place where they can belong. Everyone needs to have fun together. That's what church community is about. And it's through fellowship those who are being saved will be added daily to the church. Thirdly, they continue to break bread. I believe that church needs to be simple. We preach the gospel. We fellowship together. We break bread together. Every time we come to the table, we are reminding ourselves of our need for the gospel. That's what breaking bread is about. Every time we come, we say, Jesus, I need you. I am aware I need your body and your blood. And it's through the breaking of bread daily that those who are being saved are added into the church. I want to encourage you in your your life groups at home as a family that you break bread together. To remind yourself of your need for the gospel. And lastly, they continued in prayer. And God loves to hear our voices, doesn't he? We don't pray just because we want stuff from God. We pray because we want to cultivate, cultivate our relationship with Him. And sometimes He just wants us, wants us to shut up and not present our requests so that He can hear our voice and just chat to us and say, you're my son and i love to hang out with you. And, and Just come chat to me. Come speak to me. He wants an intimate relationship with us. That's the greatest desire that He has. And that happens through prayer. And so I want to encourage you, when you get together with your mates over dinner, when you get together in a life group or when you're meeting a worship team or people that serve up at the Planet Shakers or whatever, when you get together, that much of your conversation turns into prayer. That's how we encourage each other. That's how God speaks to us. A prayer for life will mean that those who are being saved are being added daily to the church. Amen? So how do we ensure that we keep ourselves free? We keep ourselves free by living and preaching the gospel to ourselves and to everybody else. There's no condemnation for those who are Christ. Secondly, we cultivate a walk by the Spirit. We don't live by rules. We refuse to let let rules be put on us. We keep ourselves free in the gospel so that we can seek God for ourselves and cultivate a relationship with the Spirit by ourselves. Thirdly, we give ourselves to fellowship. We give ourselves to loving each other. We give ourselves to becoming part of a church community. There's no authentic Christianity without church community. I'm so sick and tired of that thing. When people say, I'm a Christian, I don't belong to a church. You ain't a Christian. You don't even know what it means to be a Christian if you're not part of a local church. You might be saved and going to heaven, but you're not enjoying Christian freedom. Right? Christian freedom is fellowship. And then we break bread at every opportunity. And we pray at every opportunity. And we have fellowship and we worship. These are the simple things that God is calling us to. Amen? And if we give ourselves to those things, we will be free as a church community. We will enjoy the Spirit, we will enjoy all those things, and the church will grow without us trying to force people to join the church. You with me? Amen. That's all I have to say to you this morning. And I trust um, it's going to be a great year, 2013. Yeah?